Not to begin today's show on a sour note, but we lost another giant figure in the basketball world this week. The great John Thompson, the larger-than-life coach at Georgetown who coached the likes of Patrick Ewing, Allen Iverson, and several other NBA greats. I just wanted to shout out an ESPN podcast that did a really good job of looking back on Thompson's remarkable career. It's called Courtside, and it's our college basketball podcast hosted by Dan Dockich and Seth Greenberg, two former high-level college coaches themselves. Jim Beheim, the great Jim Beheim, is their guest on the show this week, uh, which just shows how much respect Thompson had in coaching circles, although Beheim and, and Big John wanted to beat each other's brains in. <laughs> um, again, if you want to check it out, it's called Courtside, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. We talk about the NBA and we are presented by Goodyear. Drive always discovers possibilities. Goodyear, more driven. It is early on Thursday morning. Uh, we had to wait till this morning because uh, Band McMahon, who's joining us from Dallas, uh, had to cover that game last night between the Thunder and Rockets. So, uh, Tim McMahon, um, we didn't want to drag you out uh, until two or three in the morning. Um, I know that I know that never happens to you. you usually go to bed early. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a definitely a early to to bed kind of guy. Wendy, you know that, but I appreciate you letting me get a little bit of beauty sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us is our uh, second favorite Texan. Sorry, Kirk. The, uh, wow, what the heck? But I mean, you know, Texas is a big state. Saying you're a second favorite Texan, <laughs> you're, you're right behind Dirk. I think <laughs> is Kirk <laughs> Goldsberry joining us from Austin, um, deep in the heart of Texas. Is, te- is Austin more Texas than Dallas? No, no I'm not, not going to get into that fight. <laughs> Listen, Austin is a little slice of California in the middle of Texas. <laughs> oh, there you go. Keep Austin weird is, is the slogan. Um, so um, way too much officiating stuff. Way too much officiating stuff. I, I don't, you know. Well, yeah, you know but how- if not for that delay of game in, in, the, in the second quarter, the Thunder could have won that. Scott Foster versus Chris Paul. <laughs> Here, let me just say something about Scott Foster. Chris Paul um, is uh, is made hundreds over a hundred million dollars playing basketball, maybe two hundred million by it's done. I haven't totaled it up, um, so he doesn't need another job. But if he ever wanted to get another job, he could be a lawyer. Oh, uh, yeah, because he's very good at presenting one side of a case and, <laughs> and, and very passionately. Um, did I like Scott Foster um, demonstratively doing Scott Foster things at the end of that game? No, I did not. That was not a happy thing for for anybody to see. I'm sure everybody in the league office, when they saw Scott Foster run from 40 feet away to call a loose ball foul on James Harden, they were like, oh, no. He didn't have to jump off the top turnbuckle before he did it either. (laughs) And being like six seconds late, um, like to point out. By the way, to help out his old pal Chris Paul, why didn't Chris bring that up in the postgame? That's what I'm saying. So, So first off, coming into this game, uh, the Rockets had lost seven consecutive games in the playoffs officiated by Scott Foster. So they're clearly the aggrieved party, right? There's the Rockets who Except, yeah. who have effectively blamed the 2017 um, lost. It was a 2018, 18. 2018 game seven loss um, to the, to the Warriors. They've blamed it on Scott Foster. And by the way, if you look at the film, there are, a few plays where Scott Foster makes very strange calls that look like they're against the Rockets. Um, And fair point. I'd like to also point out 
they missed 27 consecutive threes. But no, it's Scott Foster's fault. So definitely Rockets have no chance last night. Uh 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 uh-oh. Wait a minute. But Chris Paul. Chris Paul had lost nine consecutive playoff Mm -hmm. games refed by Scott Foster. Yeah, the Rockets Rockets bad run with Scott Foster started when CP3 got there. And it's CP3, the guy who once, after a Rockets regular season win, declared Scott Foster, he the man, that's who they pay to see. Well, see, everybody's everybody's right here. You know, Scott Foster is difficult. He's difficult on everybody. They hate him in Golden State too, okay? And so, like, you know, after the game, Chris Paul says, well, Scott Foster came up to me and said, you know, I officiated uh, Game 7 in 2008 when you lost with the Hornets. Um, and Chris Chris presents that, like, what are you talking about? Um, I'm like, dude, he rep- – <laughs> He officiated Game Seven two years ago when you lost, <laughs> and yeah. ten years ago. I mean, well, two I years ago, it, Chris was sitting on the sideline with a hammy. But yeah, okay, fine. But it's it gets against his team, right? So, my point is, Scott Foster is like that for most people. <laughs> um, and the whole Chris Paul complaining about gamesmanship. Oh boy, Chris Paul leads the history of the NBA in gamesmanship. Uh, he he complained after the game. Um, it, it, I actually think Scott Foster saying to Chris Paul, like you know Frost Nixon, that uh, famous series of debates in the '60s or I guess it was in the '70s between uh, David Frost and and uh, Richard Nixon. They made a movie, they made a play about it. Uh, this classic debate between these two strong-willed guys. I want to see at the end of their careers, Fro- um, Foster Paul. Because <laughs> I think it'd be amazing. Yeah. Because because Scott Foster coming to Chris Paul and saying, "By the way, um, you know, I, I officiate your game. You lost in two thousand eight, as well." Was in my view him saying to Chris Paul, um, "Yeah, I've ref- I, yeah, I've, I've refed a lot of games that you've lost, and you've been losing games for a long time." I think that was his way of saying it. It was his way of going right into Chris Paul's face before letting Chris Paul go into his. And then Chris Paul tells the story about how in the bubble, they play the replays very quickly. And it's an advantage if you want to decide whether to challenge or not, if you can delay a little bit to see the replay. So Chris Paul, there's a, there's a play in the second quarter where they may challenge. Chris Paul gets down to tie his shoe. And he's doing it. He admits he's doing it to allow Billy Donovan to see the replay on one of the boards. And Chris and Scott Foster comes up to him and says, hey, Chris, you don't got to do that. I already got the, the ball boys wiping up the floor, which is Scott Foster's way of saying, I know what you're doing, Chris. And I've already won a one up to you. And then Chris is like, well, I'm going to one up you again, and I'm going to keep tying my shoe. And Scott Foster's like, cool, dude, delay a game. I like Chris is accusing Scott Foster of like some sort of wrongdoing. I think he's given Chris Paul his own medicine right back. And I like it because Chris Paul was a guy who played with the, uh, uh, delay a game stuff with a technical earlier this year. Yeah. So, the untucked shirt and made Scott Foster call it. But the only reason that was called was because Scott Foster knew if he didn't call it and he didn't enforce the rules that his old nemesis CP three was going to make a huge deal of it. He bullied him into it. Right. So this is why I love the fact that the NBA assigned Scott Foster to this game. Because it's basically saying, Chris, you don't get everything you want. And I love that back and forth. 
and I and I and I really don't want to spend too much more time talking about it because these are really big, important games. But Chris Paul has no reason to say anything because there were two calls against the Rockets, and you know how I feel about the Rockets and they're complaining about officiating. But the two calls against the Rockets in the last minute, or I guess it was the last two minutes, the James Harden loose ball foul was an insane call. I, I, I might've, if I was a coach, I might've gotten ejected on that play. Just like two nights ago, I might've gotten ejected if I was Nick Nurse when Marcus Smart flopped on the break. It was one of the greatest flops I've ever seen. Maybe we'll talk about it, maybe we won't. I, I, if I was Nick Nurse, I, I might've gotten ejected, okay? Um, I'm just saying, I have declared myself the judge. Case dismissed, okay? Case dismissed. Um, McMahon, you wrote a really good story today about this game. One of your points was the defense that James Harden and the Rockets played. And while James Harden gave another offensive dud in game seven, four of 15 shooting, the Rockets, I want to point something out. The Rockets won a game, game seven, where they scored 104 Points. You want to know how many times this year the Rockets won a game that they scored 104 points or less? Once. And it was in November. The Rockets won that game with defense, McMahon, and you wrote all about it. The Rockets won that series with defense. I mean, they've got the best defensive rating so far in these bubble playoffs. And, you know, look, in a lot of ways, I think James Harden's reputation was on the line when Lou Dort caught that ball in the wing. And he was open for a second there because. If Dort knocks that down, we are talking right now about James Harden, another elimination game debacle. You know, I mean, we're we're talking about Chris Paul beating the team that dumped him. Uh, we're talking about, okay, you know, Chris Paul said some guys are built for these fourth quarters. Some guys are built for game sevens. Uh, James Harden, is, is he not one of those guys? But he comes up with a way to make a defensive play to save the series, to save so far the Rockets' season. And, and you know, he, he was so satisfied with that because obviously his reputation for years has been that he's a guy who does not give a damn defensively. And if you've watched him for the last few years, that's an outdated reputation. And so there was a lot of pride from Harden in the fact that the biggest play that he's made this season uh, was on the defensive end of the floor. Kirk, um, by the way, one more thing while I'm issuing my edicts from the bench here. Um, Chris Paul got done dirty by the Rockets with the way they traded him. But I'd like to point out that Chris Paul himself has demanded trades twice in his career, including saying, I'm only going to be traded to this team. So again, case dismissed on that front. Uh, Kirk, um, sorry, McMahon and I have been filibustering there. I got a little emotional early in the morning here. Um, You've extensively... (laughs) Uh, reviewed James Harden's offense, but his defense in this series uh, and overall Rockets defense, they won this series, as McMahon said, with that defense. Yeah, uh, I'm a I'm a Hardenologist by trade. Uh, I have been for years. Uh, and look, a lot of people are hard on him. Uh, McMahon did a great job. I recommend everybody read the piece. Uh, but yeah, I've also designed game plans against James in the in the playoffs and studied his every move. And it's fair at this point to question his offensive performances and his defensive performances in the playoffs. He has a tendency to vanish at big moments. Uh, he only had four buckets last night. Uh, we're not making this up. And, and at the end of game six, don't forget, he kind of disappeared too. 
Um, but let me be crystal clear about one thing. That guy made the biggest play of the game in crunch time last night, and he did it on defense, as Tim said. Uh, Lou Dort was about to light Twitter on fire with that three-point shot. If he had made that shot, Mike D'Antoni might be gone from Houston. Who knows who else has gone from Houston? It would trigger all this Harden discussion that we're not having today. But instead, James Harden, who was bodying up Steven Adams in the paint. If you rewatch that play, he came from the restricted area in about two seconds to put a finger on that shot. Um, the most important block shot of the season, in my opinion, maybe the, the best defensive play of the season. Um, and while it's true that he had another dicey game on offense, and it's fair to put that sort of box score in his shameful resume of, of postseason plays, uh, the, the actions he took in the last few seconds of that game ensured Houston went on to the next round. Uh, they won four games in the series. Harden averaged 30 points per game in this series more than anyone else. Uh, and now his team advances on to, to play LeBron James. So it wasn't his greatest game. It was another sort of dud on offense. But it's hard to criticize him for not being clutch when he made that defensive play at the end of the game. Somebody who who does deserve, I think, a little bit of criticism for the end of Game 7 last night is Billy Donovan. Absolutely. And he had a few timeouts, and he could have stopped the game and drawn up a play to get a really good shot and then when he did um, finally call a timeout, his ATO failed. So It failed three times. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're talking about clutch and who showed up and who didn't at the very end of the very important game seven, James Harden deserves some credibility. Billy Donovan might deserve a little bit of, uh, of shade here today. Oh, absolutely. Um, also, I'm not 100% sure on the rule here. Um they said on the broadcast last night that after that away from the ball foul um, that was called, which was the other insane call, even though that wasn't yeah. Scott Foster who actually made that call. Um, but Scott Foster allowed it to be made. That was, that was uh, when the things officially became a mess. Um, they said that any, sh anybody was allowed to shoot that free throw. It almost works like a technical. It doesn't have to be the guy who was fouled. I actually just, I don't know the rule. Well, so Chris I'm, Paul was the guy who was fouled, so. Okay, all yeah. right. So so why does Danilo Gallinari, who was having one of the worst games of the season, why does Danilo Gallinari um, take that? I know that he's a good, he's a 90% free throw shooter in his career. Some, some, I'm not, guys are, some guys are built for those game sevens, those those late fourth quarters, you know. <laughs> so Some guy, hey, listen. Chris Paul is the best closer in basketball this year. I mean, statistically, it's not close. The numbers are just astounding. Uh, that he His closing ability is the reason this thing went to seven games. It's the reason the Thunder won three games in the series. He didn't close game seven, though. Crunch time of game seven, he took a shot that he missed, committed a turnover, committed a foul, and those are his only stats in crunch time. So if if you're gonna yeah. if you're gonna you know beat your chest and and tell yeah, everybody yeah Tony it, double teamed him uh, yeah. when they came down they double teamed they're like they're you know they're not gonna now uh, I would I would argue that maybe nobody that I know of has studied shooting trends more than Kirk Goldsberry um, your data on this on this front is uh, voluminous <laughs> Ooh, good work let me let me ask you this. 
Lou Dort was having, I mean, I did not see Lou Dort play uh, AAU games as a 16-year-old, but I would argue that it was the best game of his life, 30 points in a game seven. Um, he, he was six of 12 on three-pointers in that game, but he shot 29% on threes in the regular season and was shooting 26% on threes in the series before the start of that game. So I ask you this, Kirk Goldsberry. If James Harden is a split second late and doesn't block that shot, do we think that that Lou Dort shot goes in? No. I mean, in a nutshell, Lou was having a great game, and I commend him, and I'm his biggest fan, um, and I can't wait to see uh, this young man become uh, what it looks like he's poised to become. But, yeah, that that's probably, Brian, a 35 to 40% look. Uh, if, if James Harden cannot get there and disrupt the shot, uh, a clean catch and sh- a shoot look for Lou Dort, you know, is, is probably 35, 40% shot. But look, he was hot and he was confident. A lot of players in his position would not have wanted that ball to come to him in that moment. And he looked ready. He had, and, and again, James made the play that needed to be made and didn't allow the ball to get near the rim. So we don't have to look at that. It was a 0% chance it was going to go in by the time Harden was done with and the play. It was play. clean as a whistle. No room for Scott Foster or Pat Frere <laughs> or anybody they, well, else. Hey, anything. If there's anybody who knows how to close out and sort of make sure there can be contact drawn, it's James Harden himself, mm-hmm. the master of finding a way to kick a leg or lean into the contact and get those holy three shots that the league loves to give to, to our jump shooters these days. But yeah, he came to the side. If you rewatch that play, it was masterful. He went to the shoulder and he got his finger on the ball and there was no way Dork could have created contact if he wanted to. Um, so it was a masterful defensive play. If the shot goes off, you know, man, what a story it would have been for Lou Dort to close that game with that shot. But again, James Harden didn't let that happen. Well, and, and how about going from, you know, you go into the game and obviously the Rockets defensive strategy in the game. And, you know, for, for a lot of this series was let Lou Dort shoot, let the sub 30% three point shooter take those shots and just you know, junk up the, uh, the the spacing for everybody else. So they go from let Lou Dort shoot to the game in the line. Oh no, anybody but Lou Dort. I mean, when he caught that ball, I thought I thought he was going to knock it down when <laughs> on the catch. Because like you said, Harden came all the way from covering. Uh, he he was on Adams in the restricted area. When Dort caught that ball, I didn't I didn't think there was any. He was also inside way. Adams. He was yeah. you know, so he had to get around Adams. It was it was just a brilliant play. Um, so what do you think it is in these game sevens, Kirk, with, uh, with Harden? You talked about studying this. Um, it's more than a trend now. No, it, it starts with his usage. I mean, this is a player, Brian, who has probably the highest usage rate of any player in our lifetimes. And if you just look at his usage in these last couple of games or the end of game six, and then all of game seven, he's just, he's not as assertive. He's not as aggressive. Um, the, the, the stats with Westbrook taking more shots than him, uh, down the stretch in game six and down the stretch in game seven, he, he shies away from the, the steering wheel in ways that he doesn't in other situations. He, he drives that Rockets offense to being a top three offense every year. But in these moments, there's something where he just isn't assertive in other guys. Like we saw PJ Tucker take a floater in crunch time uh, last night. 
I mean, that's a shot I don't see very often since since UT for PJ Tucker. But hey, I don't know what's going on. I, I want to say it's mental, uh, but that's not for me to say. I think it starts though with his on ball behaviors being much less aggressive in these moments than otherwise. You you agree with that, McMahon? Yeah, and look, I, I, in fairness to Harden, I'm going to point out that his last two, uh, the last two games that were Rocket season enders, obviously both against the Warriors, uh, he had 32 and 35. They weren't, they weren't especially efficient. The 32 wasn't very efficient. That's when he missed 10 straight threes during that stretch of the Rockets missing 27. But we can't sit here and call those no-show performances. Um, but. You know, Kirk certainly <laughs> very well remembers the absolute dud against the Spurs, where he's two of eleven <laughs> fouls out with no Kawhi uh, on the floor. Was Scott um, Foster roughing that game? Well, yeah, Scott Foster's hey, a great. Let job. me let me tell you that story real quick. I remember we we lost Kawhi Leonard in Game Five. You know, Game Five is Manu Ginobili, another great mm-hmm. last second three point block in NBA history. Manu Ginobili blocking Harden on the left wing near near the same spot where he blocked Dort last night. I remember I drove to Houston with Monty Williams that for that game, and we were just expecting to get our butts kicked because we didn't have Kawhi. And I was like, here we go. We're driving to Houston, and, and we're going to get our, our behinds kicked. And just sitting in that arena and watching James just not sort of wake up. And, you know, second quarter turns to the third quarter. I was like, hold on. This isn't going to yeah. change. That was one of the weirdest NBA games I've ever attended. Um, and it definitely has sort of influenced my – my attitude, Tim, as I watch him only shoot 15 times in this game yesterday, only make four buckets. Yeah, that's where I'm coming from. And I do think it's fair to question just why isn't he aggressive in some of these moments? Yeah, and I, and I also think we got to give Lou Dort credit for being one of the great on-ball defenders in the league already as an undrafted rookie. But And who just signed a four-year, $5 million contract. That would reevaluate my agent. I'm telling you what. With non-guarantees. I mean, woof. Four anyway. years, five million total. And by the way, not yeah. last summer when he was no. unsigned. No, he signed at the start of the bubble. Yeah. After he, they were, I forgot, I forgot what the record was with him in the starting lineup, but it was really good. Um, but, you know, the thing that bothers me most about Harden is, and this is what CP3 was, you know, basically throwing shade at, is late game six, you know, clutch situation, He's a spectator. He's forty feet away. He's he's not trying to get the ball. He's 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 happy to to stand there and watch. And it was you know game five uh, against the Warriors last year. You know the game where KD got hurt. The series is right there for the Rockets to take. A lot of the same stuff. Okay, CP three, go ahead. I'm gonna sit back here and watch. You know, and man, for for him to do that with Russ, obviously. Uh, and again, this is this is game six, not last night's game seven, but game six. Russ, rusty, you know, not in a rhythm, throwing the ball all over the place. I mean, I think he gave black eyes to about 23 virtual fans in that game with his, some of his passes. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, – dude, that's not the time to hand the keys to Rust. And if you do, put on a crash helmet. If only starting your fitness journey was as easy as starting this podcast. The truth is all the lift big, get big, and beach body ready in three weeks pressure stops most of us from even starting. And starting is what matters most. It's everything. Wherever you're beginning and wherever you want to be, Peloton encourages you to just start. With thousands of classes to get you moving and doing what you can, even if that's just a 10-minute low-impact class, they have those too. 
And when you're ready, take it up a gear with a 30-minute live DJ ride. Start with Peloton and find instructors that will keep you motivated to stay on your fitness journey. Learn the basics and build from there. Remember, doing something is everything. Get started with a Peloton bike or Bike Plus rental at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Terms apply. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavily on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom, Onyeho Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liquor, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. I want to talk about the Thunder's future in a second, but uh, let's look ahead real quick to the Lakers series. Um, the Rockets are going to pay a, uh, a fee here for having to go seven while the Lakers got it done in five and and uh, have not only been having the time off, been, uh, but their families have been there all week. And and Frank Vogel has given them some days off to spend with their families. Um, it was funny. I, was, I know somebody who um, used to be a rock journalist in the uh, – 60, 70. I mean, I guess there's still a rock journalist today, but um, like went on tour with the Stones and the and, and the Who and you know Led Zeppelin and whatever. And they were saying to me, you know, back when I was on these tours, when the family showed up, that's when everything went haywire. <laughs> but um, you know, huge advantage Lakers. Um, uh, McMahon, this is a series that we've been looking forward to for a while. You know, it, the the Thunder almost ruined it. Um, where do you think the Rockets are mentally? How do you think that matchup goes? They are going to force the Lakers into some discomfort, I think. Well, you know, Dan Tony pointed out that the Rockets, being such a young team, really works to their advantage on a quick turnaround <laughs> with a bunch of thirty somethings in their starting lineup. So, look, Game One, whew, it, it it might be ugly. You know, the thing I'm fascinated to see is how Frank Vogel plays this in terms of does he go small to try to match up with the Rockets, which he did February 6th. It's the first game after the, the Capella-Covington you know, four-way team deal. He went small down the stretch, and I think it was a mistake. I, 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 think, that it, I think the Lakers have to be willing to kind of deal with McGee or, or, or Dwight Howard, looking a little lost, having to defend a, a corner three-point shooter from time to time just to beat up the Rockets inside, just to absolutely pummel them on the glass. And uh, Doc Rivers and the Clippers, when they came through Houston, uh, I, uh, maybe late February it was, I remember him saying, we're not matching up with them. You know, we're, we're, we're going to do what we do. And Zubas and Montrezl Harrell absolutely killed them in that game. And I, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see whether Frank Vogel uh, stays big and you know, just tries to beat the Rockets up, or you know, if he if he tries to match up with them again, which I think is a mistake. All right, well, we'll talk more about that, but we have some breaking news right now. This is why I guess I, I really wanted to do this podcast at three a.m. so you guys could all hear it in um, when you got up this morning, but we just couldn't do that to McMahon. And, and now, was cosmically second time I've used that podcast. We have breaking news. Uh, Woj reported it first, but then the team has immediately announced it. Uh, I don't think McMahon knows, so this is going to be good. Oh, no, I've got Twitter alerts. Okay. Um, the Brooklyn Nets have named Steve Nash their head coach, which 
comes completely out of left field, which uh, compliments to all parties there. Um, Woj says it's a four-year contract and that Jock Vaughn will stay on as the lead assistant. Um, here's what Sean Marks, general manager, says. After meeting with a number of highly accomplished coaching candidates from diverse backgrounds, we knew we had a difficult decision to make. In Steve, we see a leader, communicator, and mentor who will garner the respect of our players. I have had the privilege to know Steve for many years, one of the great on-court leaders in our game. I've witnessed firsthand his basketball acumen and selfless approach to prioritize team success. Um, goes on and on. Um, this is obviously a stunning move. Um, you know, Steve, since his retirement, has worked with a number of players and been a shooting consultant and just general consultant to the Warriors. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not know that Steve had head coaching aspirations, to be honest with you. He's been a soccer commentator as well. Uh, and I think he's got some other business interests that he's had um, in various parts of the globe. Um my instant reaction is, is it kind of reminds me of when they signed, it was a different regime, different owner, different general manager, but it kind of reminds me of when the Nets like plucked Jason, like Jason Kidd, I didn't even think was ready to retire. He might've had a year left in him and they were like, yeah, Jason Kidd, you're going to be our head coach of our team that has uh, Kevin Durant. And uh, you know, we, they made this big trade and then they, you know, the, they had kid to be higher. It was sort of a Kevin Garnett. Yeah. Sorry, Kevin Garnett Durant's on my, on my brain. Um, so here they'll take a first time head coach and hand him the keys to a team with Durant and Kyrie on it. And, and to me, this is, um, you know, this doesn't happen. I, th- I think one of the struggles here was finding a balance for what the front office wanted and what you know, Durant and Kyrie wanted because they drive the bus. And I do think the front office was really, they really liked the idea of Jock Fawn as the head coach and he's done a really good job you know, coaching them after Atkinson um, left. But um, uh, McMahon, this is a, this is an interesting, this is an interesting move. I, I, I'm now getting texts from people who say, oh yeah, I, I, this was out there in the ether. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? Yeah, <laughs> why didn't you tell me? But um, this is a risk. This is a risk. I can understand. I can, you know, in, just snap hearing it in the middle of your answer about the Lakers. Um I'm still processing at this time, but it's a risk, but I can understand why they're thinking of this. They, they, they sort of had to thread a needle here. Yeah. And I'm curious, is this something like who suggested Steve Nash first? Is this something where Kevin Durant went to uh, Sean Marks and went to the, you know, Nets management lobbying for a guy who he obviously developed a relationship with during their time together uh, at Golden State or, you know, did Sean Marks, Ask KDA, what do you think? And and you know, for Kyrie, obviously, <laughs> there's a there's at least going to be the uh, the respect of okay, you, this is a dude who has played the point guard position at a Hall of Fame level. So uh, it, it's a risk, but I can also see why it makes sense through the prism of the two superstars that they're trying to build around. Kirk, there was some discussion about Greg Popovich for this job. Sure. Did you ever believe that Pop would have considered that? I mean, I'm sure he could have had yeah. it. He, he said. Consi- the, the word consider doing a lot of work there. He would consider it for sure. I mean, but I think this is a very good hire and I'll tell you why. I mean, Steve Nash might be one of the sort of headiest players to come out of, of this league in the last 20 years. When the league sort of went away from hand checking in 2004 after the uh, 
Pistons just absolutely suffocated the Lakers. Steve Nash came out of nowhere in D'Antoni's system and won two straight MVP awards. Nobody knows how to sort of run a contemporary NBA offense better than Mike D'Antoni. But if there's somebody who might, it could be Steve Nash. And the idea that if this clicks with him and Kyrie, that he can sort of unlock Kyrie Irving as a point guard, as somebody who can make shots for teammates. Uh, And oh, by the way, Kevin Durant, um, this could be a great hire. I I think it is a risk, Brian. This is an unproven head coach walking into a very challenging environment. Uh, But I think it's a smart risk. And I think that that Steve Nash deserves the benefit of the doubt. Um, He's been one of the, the smartest players. And I would say, again, he epitomizes how smaller guards and guard-oriented offenses have changed basketball um, in the last 15 years more than arguably any other player aside from maybe Curry uh, or Harden. Um, this is a guy who did it first in 2005, 2006, uh, and he's kept up with the trends being associated with the Warriors um, recently. Um, I think he's a pretty good fit. Um, and – Look, like you said, it's fair to say, hey, he's an unproven head coach, and now we're throwing him into the fire. That's a fair take. Um, but I think it's I think it's a good risk, and I think Sean Marks um, will be proud of this hire in a few years. Yeah, so the connection, the connection here is, you know, Nash was around the Warriors a lot when KD was, um, was there. So um, KD is going to have a, a comfort level with him, and uh, I think that was clearly going to be important. To me, the relationship that is I, – I don't think Kevin Durant is particularly difficult to coach. The guy who's difficult to coach is Kyrie. Mm-hmm. And here's the complicated thing about the Nets. Um, Durant carries the more sway. So ultimately, if you're going to make sure that you're on the same page, if you're going to have to connect with a star player – um, the one you have to connect with is Durant, but Kyrie has shown an uncanny ability to connect with his peers, even for a guy who, um, can be difficult to play with, quite frankly. Um, it's amazing how many guys in the league, especially star players like him, and he has gotten the ability to really get Durant to go along with him. You know, I would, I would argue that the the great accomplishments of, um, of Kyrie's basketball career, I know he's done some things off the court that have been special, but of his basketball career, one hitting the shot in game seven to win his ring two, getting Kevin Durant to come with him to Brooklyn out of all those other places he could have gone. And so to me, McMahon, the real challenge here is for Steve Nash to bond and get Kyrie being effective. That is going to be, in my estimation, his daily challenge. Yeah, that that's his daily challenge. And I also think that, you know, as as brilliant a basketball mind as Steve Nash obviously is, and you could see that, you know, with him playing point guard at the level he did for all those years, he hasn't even been a full-time NBA assistant coach. You know, he, he he was an assist or he was a consultant. He was kind of a, you know, show up when convenient type of guy. 
Um, so I think it was absolutely critical that he's got an experienced right-hand man, which, you know, Woj reported that Jock Vaughn will be the highest paid uh, assistant coach. They needed somebody, not that Jock Vaughn's got a ton of head coaching experience, but they, I think they at least needed somebody who had been in that chair, uh, you know, to, to be there to, to kind of help guide Steve Nash as a rookie coach. Yeah. I mean, I think so the, um, you know, the one thing here and Woj mentions it in, you know, in his reporting already is that the toughest thing was convincing Nash to come do this. Um, you know, we got to hear from Steve Nash on his thought process here, but, um, I think it's a really good point that he hasn't been a coach on any level, a full, a full coach before. Um, now this, just the more I think about it, it is so much like kid because, you know, kid had the relationship with Darren Williams. Um, <laughs> that went South pretty quickly. Yeah, it did. It went South super duper quickly. In fact, everything with Jason kid, who, by the way, I know a little bit and <laughs> And really like, I mean, I understand why the guy is, is uh, he's going to get another head coaching job because he's really likable. And then of course, so many of these current players, you know, grew up admiring him. You know, he has instant credibility. He's a hall of famer. Um, he, you know, I think Lawrence Frank was the highest. I think this was sort of the same thing. I think they, you know, Lawrence Frank had not been an assistant in a while and they, they made Lawrence Frank the highest paid assistant coach. Um uh, to be his lead assistant. I was like, okay, we're going to get this guy with all this head coaching experience to be his lead assistant, to be his, to be his, uh, sort of, um, his shepherd, um, to help him through this. And it went sideways immediately with, with, um, with Lawrence Frank. And remember he was, he was relegated to writing scouting reports. Yeah. TPS reports. Right. (laughs) Um, uh, and like, look, I'm not saying, you know, there's a Jason Kidd and Steve Nash are very different. I'm not back them. I'm just saying like the Nets, just went down this path a few years ago. Um, it's remarkable how similar it is. Um, hey, one other know, thing and- to point out there, Brian, Sean Marks played with Steve Nash for two years on those Phoenix teams. These guys aren't strangers, um, you know, and these young GMs who have playing experience don't dip too far from where their, their friends are. I mean, we've seen it before, but yeah, Sean and, and, and Steve know each other pretty well. This is not completely out of left field there. Um, and, and I think it's pretty out of left field to me. Well, you know, you, you had those friends who said it was in the ether, didn't you? So, I, I, hey, I don't know. But it's, it's kind of out of left field. It reminds me also of Steve Kerr, who did have experience in the front office, mm-hmm. uh, but never experience um, on the bench and, and came into Golden State and did pretty well. Um, and, and, again, Sean knows that Steve's been around. Steve Nash has been around Steve Kerr uh, for, in that organization for the last few years, too. What kind of offense do you think he'll run, Kirk? I mean, you got to play through Durant and then you got to play through Kyrie. I don't know if they will play, you know, Kyrie's not a big shot creator. He is a great off the bounce individual shot creator. So I think they have to find ways to play through uh, Durant, dribble handoff, get Durant and Kyrie attempts through the dribble handoffs. They have Jared Allen. Um, they have Joe Harris, assuming they keep him. Uh, so I think they'll try to play in a similar way to, to Golden State, uh, where they went from a post-up uh, pick-and-roll sort of attack in, in the Mark Jackson years to a lot of playing through the bigs, dribble handoff in motion uh, after Steve Kerr took over, and, and Nash had been a part of that, uh, and Durant has come from that. So I would expect to, to see a little bit uh, a, a more motion and a little bit more dribble handoffs uh, 
in Brooklyn. The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code HOOP. That's code HOOP. Download the app or visit VividSeats.com today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's ever up there, whether it's the roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit DirecTV.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Real quick, I just want to touch before we go on um, on the predicament that the Bucks find themselves in down uh, to nothing here. Um, I did not like either of those foul calls at the end of the game. Yeah. Um, in my view, when I was done with it, I was able to say, "Well, the correct team won. Uh, the Heat were the better team. They deserve to win that game." And the Giannis foul was was more egregious than the Dragic foul, um, but in my mind, they both were the wrong call, and so I I leave frustrated but at peace with the outcome. Um, I don't. Do you either? You guys disagree? With I'm that? not at peace. I'm not at peace. I'm sick of these jump shooters getting treated like they are made out of uh, porcelain. The, I agree with that. This is this has gone too far. I mean, if you look at the geography of contract allow or contact allowance on NBA courts right now, the the things that bigger players and interior players Here comes have the to, geographer. Here he comes. <laughs> Here comes the doctorate in well, geography. That's, hey, that's how I think, man. So if you look at the things that the interior players have to endure just to get a shot off in this league uh, versus the things that the perimeter scorers who already get an extra point, by the way, Brian, for for their way of shooting, uh, that, that they have to endure, It's it's gone too far. And as we continue to treat these shooters with kids' gloves, uh, what we're also doing is encouraging these shooters into the behaviors to get those whistles. And we've seen a huge uptick in three-point shooting fouls. Uh, and, and that's not good. Nobody likes to watch a guy go to the line for three free throws. So I think... I share your opinion. Miami deserved to win that game last night. Uh, and those calls took away from that. Um, but I, I don't leave at peace because this league needs to do something about these calls and, and, and just how delicate we're treating these jump shooters. And the last thing I would say is I think there's a way to protect the jump shooters, but not give them all these free throws for, for slight touches. Uh, there's got to be a better way than what's happening right now. This is the most I've ever thought about the geography of contact allowance. It's like a, a whole new world for me. <laughs> well, it's the fundamental. I mean, the rule base, you know, for years has enabled uh, post players and interior players to, to be touched and, and be pushed in ways that perimeter players are not. Uh, and that is simply unfair to, to many of us who've watched post up 
players sort of die a slow death and mid-range scorers die a slow death. So look, I'm not in charge of the rules, but yeah, I I think it is curious that the most punitive foul that's not a technical foul in this league is a three-point shooting foul and you barely touch a guy and they get three shots. Whereas a post player like Carl Anthony Towns or Nikola Jokic or LaMarcus Aldridge gets an arm bar and that's completely legal. And that dude just has to deal with it for a measly two point look. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. Interior players are shooters too. Why don't they get the same protection? (laughs) You know, let's not, let's not let those calls overlook the fact though, that the team with the best record in the league is down O2. And I mean, and taking on water. Yeah. 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 Uh, Maybe this is, Maybe this is, I'm, um, it's not recency bias. It's just bias. Maybe I'm just biased on this because um, it just reminds me so much of teams that I covered, the Cleveland Cavs in 2008 to 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, the 2008-9 team won 66 games. LeBron won MVP. Um, uh, lost in the, in, the, in the conference finals to Orlando in a matchup that, I mean, Orlando owned them. This is, it's actually kind of reminds me of the way the Heat dominated the, the Bucks during the regular season. The Magic dominated the Cavs during that regular season. There was one game down in Orlando. I want to say it was in late March or early April. Um, and the Magic beat this 66-win Cavs team. They beat them by 40. And it was like, oh. Um, and then the next year, you know, they won 62 games, were the number one overall seed again. Uh, but it got outclassed by Boston in the second round. The better team won the better team won the, that series. Boston was better. And um, you know, LeBron was an MVP. LeBron was putting up numbers. LeBron was extremely deserving of those awards. And I feel that way about Giannis. He mm-hmm. is extremely deserving of these awards. But when those you watch these awards, yes. But when you watch the Buck like if you've watched the Bucks play these two games, you can't look at that and say that this team is fine and that they'll correct themselves. Like there are serious deficiencies there. And Giannis is not, he's not honed. He doesn't have his muscles, his playoff muscles honed. I'm not talking about actual strength, but he, you can see he, he's just completely uncomfortable. And um, I don't know if he can be the primary shot creator for a championship team. Well, well, he's still so, only 25 years old. I mean, yeah, like, let's, let's not write the book just yet on him. He's one of the most rapidly improving players we've seen in the last decade. But, yeah, he does not look great down the stretch. And another thing I would say, Tim, is like as we sit here in September of, of 2020, finishing the longest, weirdest season in history, maybe my, Miami has just evolved into a better team than Milwaukee. That's what it looks like to me. They've had better shooters, better defense, and better coaching, mm-hmm. not, not in the series, but since the restart. Uh, this doesn't look like a fluke to me. Well, Bud, but is Bud a regular season coach? Mm, uh, it's a fair question. I mean, um, we you he, know we started he, this. He's this had podcast the best saying, overall. He's had the best. He's had the number one seat as a coach three times now with two different two different teams. Yeah, I was just going to say, Brian, we started this podcast with with Tim saying uh, that to James Harden's legacy was up on trial last night when when that ball landed in Lou Dort's hands. Uh, I think it's fair to say. To some degree, Budenholzer is, is is exhibiting, experiencing something similar in this mm-hmm. series, especially if they lose in four or five or six games. Uh, this is not going to look good on on his resume. And a resume you point out uh, includes similar seasons as this one. 
And obviously again, there's huge in, long-term ramifications. Right. And again, in 2008, 9, 10, the LeBron clock was ticking louder by the day. Yep. And ultimately the contract is secondary right now because they got to get this corrected. I mean, if you if you lose this series, he can't extend. He can't. I can't imagine it. And speaking of Kevin Durant, guys, one of the teams sitting there with a big check ready to write when the time comes is the Miami Heat. Uh, and and just like Kevin ended up in Oakland, uh, maybe there's a chance that, that Giannis starts to look over that other bench and say, man, these guys play hard. They, they got great shooters. They got, they got great finishers. Um, uh, and I'm uh, not uh, saying uh, that at all, but Joel then, Embiid was trying to beat him with a punch. Joel was basically yes. <laughs> cheering for the heat on social media. Yeah. And the funny thing is like, I know that there's like a natural idea there. Uh, like, Oh, uh, Joel with Jimmy, but, um, I don't think I, he'd want Joel Embiid. Yeah, he'd have Bam at a bio. I think they're completely opposite of what they want. Good at, at at center with a guy who fits perfectly, <laughs> and, and and you don't have to feed him on the post twenty five right. times a game. And by the way, they're ahead two zero in this series, and they haven't even had to put Bam on Giannis yet. Like they haven't. Like Spolstra still has stuff in the holster. But why would you? Jay Crowder can keep him away from the basket. I mean, they're getting they're getting defensive performances. Credit to the organization for building this roster, by the way. But they're getting that defensive performance from Jay Crowder. Uh, and if there's one thing as a Bucks fan you got to worry about, it's like if Giannis can't punish Jay Crowder in a series like this, um, you know, you're in trouble. It's like LeBron against JJ Barea, although Jay Crowder, <laughs> uh, Crowder a little box my ears for saying that, but. Um, Although, you know, LeBron played in most of those playoffs, played great. In the Boston series, when he lost, he did not. But um, in the Orlando series, where they lost, he had one of the greatest series of his career, and they lost. So, um, you know, LeBron played like an MVP um, a lot of that time. His team just wasn't good enough. Here, we have Giannis not playing like the MVP, and he's going to win it, you know. And um, might want to move that announcement up. I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. I mean, whether they move it up now or not, it's still – it doesn't change the, the embarrassment he's going to feel. Yeah, I'm just saying you don't want the post-elimination announcement that that uh, old Dirk lived through when he got his MVP. You went to that press conference? Yeah, that was, was a tough one. <laughs> Didn't he like immediately like, fly to Australia and go into the mountains with Holger or something? Yeah, I don't know if they have, have mountains. Yeah, he did the whole Outback thing for sure. Okay, Outback, that's what I meant. That's what yeah. I meant. Um, all right, well, thanks, guys. Um, a lot more to talk about. A lot's happening in the NBA. Um We'll be here to uh, talk about it. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you um, to Troy back in Bristol for putting it together. And uh, everyone have a great weekend. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV.
Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.